0: Good afternoon, morning, evening, wherever you currently are as you're listening to this episode. Uh, whether you're hanging with family over Zoom or fortunate enough to be enjoying quarantine with them, we thought it would be fun to celebrate Thanksgiving with you. Uh, you're listening to what we previously designated as a bonus episode. The first of its kind featured Stephanie Dandler reading an excerpt of her memoir, Stray. And in this bonus episode, you'll hear a series of Thanksgiving-related stories from Ruth Reichel. These essays are a selection of her letters from the editor from Thanksgiving issues of Gourmet Magazine. And if we haven't convinced you that Ruth's episode is perfect for your Thanksgiving holiday, well, just listen to her resume. Uh, She was the editor-in-chief of Gourmet Magazine from 99 to 2009. Before that, she was a restaurant critic of both the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times, where she was also named food editor. She's also on restaurants, and she's the author of several cookbooks and novels. She made a name for herself by writing several blockbuster food memoirs, including Tender at the Bone, way back in 98. That's two years before Anthony Bourdain published Kitchen Confidential. Among literally dozens of accolades we don't have time to get into, Ruth Reichel has been honored with six James Beard Awards, and we are honored to have her for this episode of Storybound. One more note (laughs) before we get started. When we recorded Ruth, somehow we didn't get her saying her actual name, so I'm going to help her get her introduction started. Everyone, this is Ruth Reichel.
1: And you're listening to Storybound.
0: Welcome to Storybound, presented by Lit Hub Radio and the Pod Glomerate. I am your host, Jude Brewer. In just a little bit, you're going to get to hear some stories written and told by Ruth Reichel. Uh, these were from her letters from the editor, from her Thanksgiving issues of Gourmet Magazine. We hope you enjoy. And if you stick around until after the credits, you're going to get to hear a little bit about Storybound Season 3. See you then.
1: This is a Thanksgiving story. Promise of a new day. When does a child become an adult? Every family has its own defining moment, a gesture that marks the transition. Sometimes it's a ceremonial event, graduation, confirmation, maybe marriage. But in many families, the occasion is less formal. In my own case, the big moment occurred at Thanksgiving. (laughs) Newly married and living in New York, I invited my entire family to eat turkey. My mother, a notoriously terrible cook, was delighted to be let off the hook. And since she routinely undercooked the bird, forgot the gravy and dished up instant mashed potatoes, the rest of the family ought to have been equally eager for a change. And yet, I sensed a certain reluctance. Looking around at the bare loft we then lived in, I understood. My brother was loath to trudge up five flights of stairs to sit at the battered table we had found on the street. Aunt Bertie would long for her Wedgwood, My elegant sister-in-law would yearn for the sterling. But I was certain I could produce a meal that would make them overlook the bleak surroundings. For weeks, I trolled the streets of lower Manhattan. I found a live poultry store and identified prosperous-looking turkeys. I made friends with a dairyman who promised newly churned butter and cream so thick it would practically whip itself. When I told the woman in the nut shop that this was my first pecan pie, She smiled sympathetically, selected her finest specimens, and handed over a secret recipe. On the morning of the big day, I got up at 4 a.m. to wash the floor and bake four pies before the bird went into the oven. I turned up the music in the kitchen, dancing in the dark as I peeled apples and rolled out dough. I roasted chestnuts, shucked oysters, and sliced onions, filling the loft with so much perfume and promise it seemed to transform itself before our eyes. But then the buzzer rang, and I looked out the window to see the Bowery in all its glory. My parents were staring helplessly at the bum draped across our doorstep, sleeping it off. As I watched, my mother picked up her skirts and nimbly skipped over him. My brother arrived next. When I looked down, he seemed out of place in his cool blue suit, But as he came puffing in the door, he simply took a deep breath and said, this smells like a big improvement over Thanksgiving's past. Then Aunt Bertie, who was nearing 100, arrived. And we all went downstairs to help carry her up. I was worried when we got to the loft, but she merely looked around and pronounced it quaint. The turkey was perfectly cooked. I did not forget the gravy. And the mashed potatoes had no lumps. As she started in on her third piece of pie, Aunt Bertie raised her glass to make an announcement. Looking straight at me, she said, it's time you took my Wedgwood plates and my sterling silver. Now I know they will have a good home. Sometime around midnight, after my parents had taken Aunt Bertie home and the thrift store dishes had been washed and dried, we took out the remains of the turkey and ate again. Waving a drumstick, my brother said, I hope you realize what Aunt Bertie was saying. From now on, Thanksgiving's at your house. Now, each year, when I take out Aunt Bertie's beautiful plates and her ornately old-fashioned sterling, it occurs to me that the best thing about this particular coming-of-age ritual is that I get to relive it year after year. I hope that Thanksgiving at your house is happy in every way.
0: You are listening to Storybound, and now for a short break. And now we return from our break.
1: Reality show. I was just thinking about Aunt Bertie's plates, you can't overprepare for Thanksgiving. When I found myself rerunning a conversation I had this past summer with a friend, as I polished the silver, including that little sterling bowl that I usually forget about until after I've made the spiced nuts, I kept mulling over the talk we had when we ran into each other at the hardware store. After she had thanked me, once again, for a dinner party at our house, she said, I felt so bad leaving you with all those dishes. Why don't you hire someone to help you? I stared at her, not quite able to find words. It's not that expensive, she said into the silence. I could find someone. I was still speechless. Realizing that I was being rude, I finally stammered, You know, I kind of like doing dishes. There's something so satisfying about creating order out of chaos. Oh, she said, giving me an odd look. In that case... Driving home, I realized that I had evaded the question. I had told the truth, but not given the answer. If I'm honest, I have to admit that the entire notion of help makes me profoundly uncomfortable. It violates my sense of who I am and where I place myself in the world. It is, in part, generational. When I was a child, the women I knew were entirely comfortable with household help. A delightful character named Alice worked for my Aunt Bertie for more than 60 years, staying on during some very lean times. I think the two women were deep into their 80s before either of them recognized that they had become each other's closest friend. Thinking of those lost possibilities in that relationship makes me so sad. My mother could only occasionally afford to hire help, but she never gave a party without bringing someone in. Usually it was some tired woman who got off the bus in worn clothes, came up the service elevator, donned a white uniform, and resentfully served and washed and cleaned. I hated that those women knew the most intimate details of our lives while we knew so little about theirs. And I cringed every time mom referred to one of these women, who were often well into middle age, as the girl. Asking some stranger to do the dirty work reminds me of the deeply awkward social relationships that existed during so much of the last century. But that's only part of the reason why I preferred to make do on my own. For me, the whole point of asking people to dinner is that you're inviting them into your life. They show up for a true reality show, for a moment when they discover who you really are. Your friends may not get a faultless meal in a fabulous house, but they do get the pleasure of knowing that you trust them. If you want a cleaned-up version of the truth, You can always hire a caterer and a phalanx of servers and be assured of a perfect evening. But perfect evenings rarely lead to great friendships. So this Thanksgiving, once again, we will be eating off chip plates. Half of the guests will be leaning on that rickety fold-up aluminum table we keep in the basement. I'll cover it with a cloth, but it won't fool anyone, and we'll be praying that it doesn't collapse. There will be the usual rush at the final moment, while one of us carves the turkey, someone else will be smashing the bacon-spiked potatoes, and a third will be trying to find enough room to stir the Brussels spouts. It will be a raucous, riotous mess. It will be wonderful. And inevitably, when the evening ends and all the pies have been eaten, I'll be facing a mountain of dishes. Anyone who cares to pitch in is welcome to do so. I can always use a little help from my friends. This one is called Second Helpings. There was no turkey at my house on Thanksgiving last year. No cranberry sauce or stuffing either. To be honest, we didn't even have a piece of pie. It hasn't always been this way, but over the past few years, we've started a new Thanksgiving tradition of our own. Like most traditions, this one wasn't intended to be one. Seven years ago, when Thanksgiving rolled around, I suddenly realized that my guest list was dwindling. In most families, when one generation leaves the stage, the next one makes an entrance. But our family is too small for that. My husband is an only child, and I have just one brother. And he doesn't count, because he lives on the far side of the world in a country that does not even recognize the existence of Thanksgiving. This leaves us with a serious family gap. I expect my son will one day fill it with a wife and children, but that's a long way off. In the meantime, we are dependent upon friends. And lately, they've been less available. It seems that nowadays everyone has some sort of Thanksgiving obligation. Turkey for three is the obvious answer. Need I point out the problems? Even if I were content to roast a nice little turkey breast, it just wouldn't seem right. Pie for three? Please. To me, the whole point of Thanksgiving is to share it with others, lots of others, but not lots of other strangers. Frankly, I can't think of anything more miserable than sitting down to a restaurant dinner on Thanksgiving. It seems contrary to the spirit of the holiday. And so I have a different solution. While the rest of America is baking pies and stuffing turkeys, I'm grilling hamburgers, preparing pasta, and baking brownies. The menu changes from year to year because everybody in the family gets to choose what they want to eat. Then we build a fire, put a blanket on the floor, and turn out all the lights. This private picnic has become its own cozy ritual and an occasion that we look forward to all year long. But don't think of us as turkey-deprived. The noble bird has not vanished from our lives. He merely arrives late. He shows up on Friday along with all of our closest friends. For them, it is a second celebration, one without any potential family or culinary tensions. No critical in-laws, no overwrought ants, and no overcooked turkey. For us, it's an opportunity to share a meal with some of the people we love best. They may not be related by blood, but they too are our family. And by now, I know exactly what will happen. Fresh from their other turkeys, they will sit down at our table and say, Thanksgiving tastes so much better the second time around. That's what they say every year. It's become part of the tradition.
0: You are listening to Storybound. And now for one more break. And now back to our show.
1: Summer of 72. We went clear across the country, back roads all the way, scruff sitting on the dashboard more like a dog than a Siamese cat. It was July, and Route 2 was as far north as you could go without being in Canada. The days stretched, long and languorous, the light lasting until 10 or 11 every night. It felt like freedom to be out of New York, out of our cockroach-ridden loft on the scary Lower East Side, and out of the nine to five jobs we hated. Sometimes, as we were rolling through empty cornfields with the sky huge above us, Doug would look at his watch and say, we could be on the bright D train right now with some guy standing over us, slowly dripping sweat. And we'd laugh and think how much we didn't want to go back. We took our time heading west, stopping for church suppers in the upper peninsula of Michigan where they served us fried chicken and potato salad. We bought pasties, sturdy meat pies, in the little towns we drove through, munching as the miles rolled past. In North Dakota, we stopped at the Rosebud Reservation to give our friends the braids of garlic we'd brought from Little Italy. They said garlic was what they missed most about New York, but there wasn't a single clove in the entire state. We stayed a week talking, cooking, going to powwows where we ate fry bread, and once, something they told me was boiled dog. Was it true? One night, Joe came home with a wild turkey he'd shot himself. I'd never seen one, never seen that strangely curving backbone that won't sit straight in any pan. When it came time to go, Joe handed me a star quilt. Gets cold up there in northern Washington, he said. You take this. Our people know about living outside and staying warm. Somewhere in Wyoming, the radio went dead. It came booming on again just outside Cheyenne, a Ravi Shankar Raga that accompanied us for miles. A good omen, we thought, still worried about what we would find at the end of this journey. We'd done it on a lark, agreed to work at a glass workshop in the wilderness. Some patron of Dale's had built him a place north of Seattle, and students were coming for the summer. The equipment was all there, but not much else, and Doug was supposed to help the kids build the structures they'd live in. I would teach them how to cook. No money, but it beat another summer in the city with our shoes sticking to the sidewalk and me and Julio down by the schoolyard playing over and over in the bodega downstairs, coming through our windows, invading our dreams. Kilchuck turned out to be the most beautiful place I'd ever seen and the most primitive I'd ever lived in. My heart sank when I saw the kitchen. It was just a wooden platform with a wall on two sides and a sink with a washtub hanging over it. We were going to have to gather wood for cooking, build a fire pit, make do. There were no bathrooms either. Am I remembering this right, or is it just that after a while we didn't use them anymore? The forest was all around us, and the clear lake beat any shower I'd ever used. What I remember most is how strange it seemed later, going back to civilization with its bathtubs and its toilets. Their lack had been another kind of freedom, and I'd liked it fine. It was frantic at first, a mania of competitive building, everyone intent on making his house into a work of art. Jamie Carpenter went to the town dump, collected every old window he could find, and built a treehouse. It was a crystal palace in the sky, an extremely sexy structure. A RISD kid named Tree built a yurt in the middle of an open field. John hollowed out a tree stump and called that home. Doug spent an entire afternoon looking for living tent poles, then stretched plastic between the trees, creating a transparent house. It was oddly elegant, and from far off in the distance, you could see our star quilt winking out its welcome. Scruff was a city cat, but his ways were wild. At night, he'd creep into the forest, returning with little birds and chipmunks. I was always worried that we'd lose him, but all we had to do was whistle, and he'd come running back, jump onto the bed, lick his paws, and purr. The forest embraced us, offering endless gifts. I walked the land, picking blackberries for pies and jam. They were everywhere. I went foraging for mushrooms and found lamb's quarters as well. I stuffed the leaves into my mouth. The flavor was bright green, spring-like, so much more delicious than the supermarket spinach we'd been eating. I'd put out pails of milk at night and find yogurt in the morning. Such abundance. To me, it felt like magic. At the Samish reservation, we traded glass for salmon. How are you going to cook that? A native woman asked. When I told her, she laughed and showed me how they did it there, planking the fish around a fire. I'd never tasted fish like that. Sparkling fresh, rich with fat, very smoky. I'd brought no pots or pans along, so Dale took me to this Snohomish auction where, for 50 cents, I bought the contents of an entire country kitchen. I'd been meant to show the students how to cook, but they were making art, and in the end, it was easier to do it all myself. I was very happy. One day, Buster came into my kitchen and watched me try to light a cranky fire. I've got a better idea, he said, taking my hand. In the workshop, he shoveled molten glass out of the furnace, spreading it across a table. Your stove, he said. It was 2,000 degrees of ferociously glistening heat, and it took a bit of practice. But in a few days, I had mastered meat. You had to calibrate the cool. Pancakes were easy, eggs very hard. I made mistakes. But the days were long, and nobody cared if we didn't eat till midnight. We ate right from the pots, mostly with our fingers, and drank straight out of the bottle. In late August, we trooped out to Tree's yurt to watch the northern lights go flashing through the sky above us, falling, falling. It was beautiful and sad. Summer was waning, fall coming on. We would have to leave. The patron invited us to a final feast, and we sat around his fancy pool, feeling like children at a grown-up party. There were crackers and cheese, and the wine was served in glasses. It was very nice, but we were minding our manners and eager to go back to the forest where there were no rules. By then we knew, Doug and I, that we were done with the city, although we did not yet know how we would manage the escape. Leaving was awful, like being kicked out of paradise. We were so depressed as we rolled east that some nights we didn't bother looking for a campsite. We just pulled over on the side of the road and climbed into the back of the van. One of those mornings, I woke to find that we were already moving. Wait, I said, stop, we can't leave yet, Scruff's not back. Doug kept driving. I looked at his face and saw that it was wet. He let the tears fall, watching the road until his shirt was soaked. When he found his voice, he said, there will never be another cat like him. Later, he told me that he'd seen the car hit scruff, that it had happened fast. By then, we were in some little diner off the highway. It was small and smelled like old hamburgers, stale beer, and bad coffee. We ordered eggs. They were overcooked. Summer's over, Doug said, as he paid the bill. He was more right than he knew. Dale got famous. Pilchuck got buildings, workshops, dormitories, and bathrooms. I suppose that these days there is also a proper kitchen. Students still flock there in the summers and they're still blowing glass. But when I look back, I can see myself in that funny little kitchen with the washtub over the sink. I can feel the sun shining down in me and hear the wind rustling through the trees. Scruff is twisting through my legs, purring. Me, I'm looking down at the lake, happy to be here and utterly unaware that I have just learned about all the things that I will never need.
0: We recommend you check out Ruth Reichel at ruthreichel.com. That's R-U-T-H-R-E-I-C-H-L.com. And pick up one of her books if you like what you heard. And if you like this story and are new to Storybound, you should check out the first two seasons. We have a whole 20 episodes for you to discover. And subscribe while you're at it. We'll be launching season three in just a few weeks on December 8th, featuring all new voices on the show. Definitely some you'll recognize, along with musicians we're excited to introduce you to. We hope you're having a pleasant holiday, and if you're not celebrating a standard tradition, well, we hope you're at least setting aside some time to relax and recalibrate. We'll be back with 16 new episodes starting December 8th. So make sure you're subscribed, and if you have a friend, cousin, or spouse you think would enjoy the show, send them a recommendation. We love making the show, and we would love your help finding an audience. Find us on Instagram at storyboundpod, and let us know which episodes you're connecting with, or send along an author recommendation storybound is made possible by listeners like you thank you to ruth for appearing on the show and thank you to phoebe for scheduling assistance storybound is arranged produced and hosted by me jude brewer with assistant mixing provided by tim carplus our executive producers are jeff Umbro of the podglomerate and justin alvarez of LitHub. this show's theme is developed with the help of james cook and you can find his music under the name grain table Don't forget to subscribe and come back on December 8th for a whole new season of Storybound. Thank you for listening.